and welcome to the Netzero Investor podcast. I'm Atharva Deshmukh, the head of research for Netzero Investor. Joining us today is Nawar Al Sadi, the founder and CEO of Kanata Advisors, an ESG advisory firm. Thank you for joining us, Nawar. Hi, Adi. It's a pleasure to be with you. So today's topic is private equity, climate tech, and the next shiny thing. So to give some background on this, on 23rd of January this year, Netzero Investor ran a story about a Canadian venture capital fund that had announced something interesting. In its latest fund, which is focused on early stage investments in climate tech, it was oversubscribed. It raised nearly $335 million. Where it gets interesting is the list of investors. Now that includes some of North America's largest asset owners. This, of course, is no isolated incident. It is indicative of a much larger trend of asset owners allocating capital to private equity funds, often driven by this objective of increasing exposure to climate technology. So in today's episode, we will unpack this link between an asset class, that is private equity, and an investment theme, that is climate technology. So in recent years, we have seen a surge in asset owner interest in private equity, most prominently between 2019 and 2022. So research from the Equable Institute shows that, quote, pension funds now have more money in alternative investments like private equity than at any point in history. If we take the United States state and local pension funds as an example, they've allocated an average of 13% of their capital to this asset class based on the latest data available. But that being said, private equity fundraising did slow down in 2023. In fact, it slowed down to a six-year low. So to start things off and give our listeners a sense of what the trend is, Nawar, could you tell us why asset owners are keen on allocating capital to private equity and what exactly the trend is? Yeah, I think this is a good place to start this conversation. And and um, this trend you alluded to, idea has been in the making for a long time. And there are multiple drivers for that. I mean, the key driver in the 2000s and the 2010s, we went through a long period of zero interest rates. And that forced asset owners to look for uh, yield somewhere else. So in that context, you had that macro driver that built up over decades. And we still... I believe, living in the echo of that shift. A lot of pension funds are slow in their decision-making, so although interest rates are higher, I, I would say a lot of them are still operating from that perspective that they need to catch up with alternative assets and, and get exposure to it. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story, I think it's, it's an interesting part, is that the private equity space has really matured over the last 30 years or so. So in the 1980s, it was mostly buyout funds. You buy companies, you load them up with debt, and you flip them over. And it was not a repeatable activity in the sense that this wasn't a mainstream activity. It was more risky than other traditional forms of investing. And it was also a very small segment of the market. In 1980, there were only 24 PE firms. Today, we have 20,000 PE firms. And 15,000 of them or so were created in the last five, six years. So the capacity for this industry to absorb large amount of capital has really expanded. And that's obviously key for large asset owners that need to deploy large amount of capital. I would also say the returns are there over the last 20 years. Private equity space, which I also must say also matured in the way it operates. It's not focused on buying companies, loading up with debt or kind of aggressively cost cutting. Private equity industry now is focused on value creation in the context of improving operations and making companies leaner, but more effective, more profitable, 
but I would say not using blunt instruments. So all of that has led to better performance over the last 20 years. Private equity did better than public markets, so that's another impetus. And then finally, we have sustainability. And the sustainable driver aligns very well with where private equity is today in the sense a lot of these companies are held for 10 years or so. And you do need a long-term horizon to implement sustainability initiatives and to transform businesses in a sustainable way. That's true. So speaking of asset owners investing in private equity funds. So investing in private equity for them could also mean a shift in the asset owner asset manager relationship. And we know how critical that is to the stewardship strategies that asset owners themselves have put into place. So what does the asset owner asset manager relationship in private equity look like? And how does that impact active ownership? Well, historically, I mean, for the most part, these relationships were quite contained between limited and general partner in the sense that the limited partner gives the money to a fund managed by a general partner or a GP, and they wait for that fund to be liquidated and they take their money back or go through the cycle once more. This kind of core characteristic of the industry has not changed much in the sense LPs don't have a lot of say on how GPs manage their companies. Now, as sustainability came into play, you see asset owners, which are the limited partners, asking for certain expectations or criteria or a minimum level of engagement between GPs and their portfolio companies. And you see a lot of GPs responding um, through sustainability policies, through stewardship programs. Obviously, stewardship in a private context is easier in a sense than public stewardship, where you are just a tiny owner submitting shareholder resolutions and engaging with companies. It's different when you have control. So I would say the stewardship from an LP perspective starts at an outline of what their expectations are of their GBs. But there was also another evolution that took place in the 2010s. Historically, LPs would just give money to a fund and the fund would invest. But now we see more and more co-investments where the asset owners are taking direct positions alongside the private equity firm. And this was largely motivated by a desire to lower fees. And you actually see it, for example, Canada Pension Plan, the CPPIP, the largest pension fund in Canada, in 2006, they had $1.6 billion in co-investments. Today, they have $38 billion in co-investments. Uh, and that obviously introduces another layer of active ownership. When you're directly on the asset, you can be far more influential. And then finally, I would add just the competitive aspect of that. I just mentioned we went from 24 funds to 20,000 funds over the last three decades. When the market is competitive, you may want to differentiate yourself by offering better stewardship capabilities. So asset owners can shop around for a, a GP or uh, or private equity firm that is more proactive in terms of sustainability if the asset owner has a desire for such engagement. So that's really, really interesting. So another challenge for asset owners, you know, in addition to the stewardship part, is that investing in private equity brings on a challenge in the availability of reliable and comparable data. So investors use various kinds of data to assess their investment decisions. So, for example, emissions disclosures by not only companies, but also private equity funds themselves. And compared to public markets, private markets have been relatively lightly regulated in terms of transparency and mandatory disclosures. So for asset owners, this could become a hurdle in the long run, perhaps. So what is the current state of play for disclosures and emissions data in, in private markets? And 
What can asset owners expect in the future? I would say it's a mixed picture. There are some good landmarks we can look at. For example, if you look at the ESG data convergence project, which was an initiative by about 100 PEs to basically streamline and standardize ESG reporting for portfolio companies. They started in January 22. They had about 8.7 trillion in assets. And today, there are about 350 GPs and LPs part of that initiative managing $27 trillion in assets. So the participants in that initiative have streamlined or are in the process of streamlining this reporting around six key criteria. And that's obviously been something that uh, the industry is asking for because uh, just the, the demand, the level of pressure on GPs to produce this information and the challenge for their portfolio companies, many of them might be much, much smaller than public companies has been a challenge. So kind of highlighting what the metrics are and choosing these six metrics, I think it's a good start. I would also say technology in this area has really progressed. I mean, although I worked prior to my current role in the pension side, I've been following the technology side for a long time. And actually, my current position with Canada Advisors is focused on ESG fintech. And a lot of the companies I work for have introduced portfolio management solutions for companies to manage their GHG reporting or for PEs to manage a big basket of these reports in an accessible, efficient way and communicate that information to their LPs. So I think we're having progress in terms of that governance structure that I just alluded to earlier. We're also having it in, in terms of technology. The bad news is that there was a report that was put by LP Perspectives, I believe late last year. They just did a survey of limited partners and their perceptions of how their GPs are managing for them. And they concluded that only 48% of uh, general partners are taking climate risk seriously. So that tells me that there is still about half of the industry that needs to do more. And if, you, if you're not taking climate risk seriously, then you're not collecting the data because it's of no value to you. The risk is not something you perceive to be material. So I think we need progress on that front. Going back to good news again is that we're seeing a march of regulation, including, for example, the EU CSRD, which applies to private companies as well, large private companies, which ultimately means that you're going to see uh, companies that are not public aligning with public disclosure in certain jurisdictions, such as in Europe, and I believe we'll continue to see this trend around the world. So at the, at the end of the day, we're going to see alignment between private and public reporting. It just is going to be at a different cadence, and I would say still the private side is about two, three years behind where the public side is. So let's pivot now to the investment theme that seems to be driving this, uh, one of the investment themes, and that is climate technology. To give some perspective to our listeners, in 2013, climate tech accounted for 1.4% of private equity venture capital investments globally. And in 2023, that number was over 10%. So for over a decade now, companies and industries like carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, grid technology, materials, batteries, these have featured quite prominently in private equity and venture capital investments. And by tapping into these funds, asset owners also gain access to this exciting group of climate tech companies with a massive first mover advantage. So why is climate technology becoming this attractive investment themes, not only for private equity funds, but also for asset owners who might invest in them? 
Well, the short answer is that there is a 150 to 250 trillion dollar opportunity for the world to decarbonize. That's a massive pile of money, and PE is interested in 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 that in that potential. So that foundation, the fact that this is a massive investment and uh, and restructuring and, and and rebuilding of the world economy, offers tremendous opportunities for any financial institution and, 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 and all financial asset classes. So that's really, the I would say, the starting point. But I think it's important to differentiate before we dive deeper between the traditional PE and VCs. So the VC industries are about 25% of the PE space. So the other 75%, which is more kind of mainstream in the sense that they buy cash flowing businesses, steady profile, obviously an opportunity for improvement. They do expect cyclicality to play to their advantage. These players are interested today in climate investments that have a stable cash flow profile. And you see a lot of climate investments today have reached that level of maturity, whether it's wind farms, solar farms, battery storage, so now you can invest in these large infrastructure kind of renewable energy projects and carry them until ultimately exiting. In a similar fashion, you would treat a mainstream investment that's not a climate investment. So that part of the market continue to mature. And, and if I'm not mistaken, in the last couple of years, the private side invested more in solar and wind than public markets investment in terms of IPOs. And secondaries, it was materially higher. And you can find that information, Bloomberg, if, if you look for it. But the VC side is really the interesting piece of this. So there is a lot of focus on the VC side because for starters, about 35% of the technologies that we need to decarbonize, according to the International Energy Agency, are still in the development phase. They're still in the experimental kind of experimentation phase. So this is where VCs can come in and provide capital to prove technologies and prove business models. And they've excelled at that in software and computing, and, and we've seen that over the last 20 years. The challenge for deep climate is that the average ticket to invest in a climate technology is about six times what you would invest in a fintech. So where the average kind of ticket size for an early stage VC in a fintech company is 4 million, for companies that are operating in hydrogen or kind of circular models or carbon capture, the average initial investment is $25 million. And that's too large for a lot of VCs. The second challenge, obviously, there is no cash flow profile. So you're not going to see the higher echelon of PEs going into this space, neither see the VCs being able to fund that kind of space. So that basically created a gap, according to Deloitte, which is about $2 trillion gap in funding between today and 2030, because the VC space is not built to fund companies in that fashion. It's the lack of knowledge in terms of challenges. And I deal with a lot of people in the VC space. There's also a lack of knowledge about the financial viability of a lot of climate technology. I personally looked at 200 pieces of climate solutions when I was a chief impact officer at Scope 4 Capital. And in order to make an assessment whether a technology is viable, is bankable, whether there's a business model around it, you do need to have a lot of expertise and there are a lot of small VCs just don't have that capabilities to make that assessment. So that knowledge gap as well has been also a challenge. So I, I, although you mentioned that there is a rise, we're going to hit a plateau for some of these obstacles that I've just highlighted. Two points that you raised really interesting about, you know, the maturity of technologies and the average ticket size being that large. And, you know, just to pivot the conversation a little bit, at Net Zero Investor, when we spoke to some of the investors who attended COP28 
in Dubai, what we heard was about climate tech companies that were given this platform to showcase what stage of commercial application their technology was at. And at the same time, the entrepreneurs who were doing that were talking about how they were seeking a new kind of investor to join their ranks, you know, an investor with more patient capital than perhaps what we see and private equity can bring to the table. So as you said, there does exist a knowledge gap, but at what point does a climate technology company move from the world of private equity venture capital to a world of more direct exposure to patient capital and what kinds of financing can move that conversation forward? Well, I would say if it's not a software-based uh, climate technology company, it needs to have access to that patient capital as soon as possible. I mean, it should be the get-go capital. But here's the question. who is? What is that mystery patient capital? I think people talk about patient capital, but patient capital, like all capital, expects a healthy rate of return at the conclusion of uh, that investment cycle. So which kind of returns are we expecting? It's still a valid question whether you are patient or not patient. So I would say if you look at the VC space, I think it's important to understand the business model. So the VC space operate under the premise that for each 10 investments, seven will go bust, two will break even, and one will be a home run. Now, that model makes sense if you have a small ticket size. I mean, you can spread your money with small bets and 10 companies and, and, and ultimately make it work. But since I just mentioned that the average ticket size is $25 million, and the average size of a VC fund is about $200 million, for that model to be applied in climate tech, you need the average VC fund to be worth $1.2 billion. So the industry needs to get much larger. Now, to put VC aside, people talk about public-private partnerships. For example, it's a great model to bring public capital to kind of support the private side. Yes, there's been attempts to move in that direction, but I also I think we have to be cognizant about the risk of offloading risk to governments, meaning to you and me, and privatizing profit to private companies. I mean, ultimately, that's going to create social unsustainability in the sense that if you are funding technology in that way, you have to build it through a structure that is fair to both parties. Whether we have that or not, I can't opine on this, but to me, that's a critical risk. And to some extent, we've been talking about this for a long time, but this has not really grown to scale that can actually fund the $2 trillion I just mentioned in missing capital. The other approaches that have been put forward, uh, for example, is green development banks, which are basically quasi-public entities. We've seen in COP28, they created an initiative to support sustainable development in the Amazon. Well, that's also a healthy direction we can move into. But again, $28 billion, for example, or so that was committed for the Amazon, that's still a tiny amount of money of what we need. And then you have... For technologies that require only scaling, you can look at project financing and guaranteed offtake agreements. But when I look at all this kind of hodgepodge of solutions, I don't think we're looking at the right solution. I do believe the right solution will ultimately come from the VC space itself, but that the VC space needs to evolve. If we go back to the PE, I'll end up on that point. The PE space in the 80s held a company on average for three years and they flipped it. Now they hold it for 10 years and they build it. So the industry has shifted, has matured, has grown. And we should see a similar 
growth in the VC space with the help of the asset owner communities. We need asset owners to work with large-scale VCs and even smaller, mid-scale, and work with them by committing to them long-term capital, by giving them the breathing room to see these companies through, and also giving them the capabilities to spread that risk over a large number of projects. I think we're going to see that happen, and that's the fastest way we can move forward. Rather than waiting for a new form of financing to emerge, we need to leverage the tools we have today to make uh, what we need to do on climate happen. And I think that's uh, feasible if we get uh, the commitment of the asset owners to move in that direction. So that's a really interesting note on which we can move to the end of this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And Navar, as always, thank you for providing your insights. Thank you, Eddie. It was really great.